We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days of, or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descendant from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. I'm just going to pray um, and then we'll... Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus, um, our glorious risen King. Thank you so much for these, his words of eternal life. 
Um, and yeah, I pray as Pete speaks to us now, it help us to be listening humbly, um, expectantly and joyfully. Um, and might you be at work by the power of your spirit, helping us to know you better. Um, so we're equipped to hold fast to Jesus until the end. The praise of your glory. Amen. Thank you, Gabby, for reading from the Bible. And if you could have that reading open, that would be really helpful as we look at this um, passage. And I appreciate, on the face of it, chapter 7 of Hebrews uh, seems a bit alien to us. I think we can be honest about that, can't we? A bit complex, maybe. Um, you see, in Manchester 2022, we, we don't really talk about priesthoods, do we? Uh, let alone Old Testament ones. Um, we can feel a bit of a disconnect. Uh, one pastor summed it up like this, who the heck is Melchizedek? You know, it's like... <laughs> It's very honest. What's this about paying tenths and uh, all this talk about an order of Aaron and ancestry and tribes and weak laws and binding oaths and everlasting intercession? It, it feels like a culture with priorities that are far, far away from our own. Frankly, it, it seems irrelevant. But what if I said, in everyday life, we all have patterns, we have boundaries. And Frank, if you can just flick on the slide, I've just put this picture up here, double yellow lines. The things that are supposed to stop us from crossing over. We have these boundaries, these markers in life, don't we? They give us shape and purpose. They give you identity, they give you meaning. They can sometimes even mark progress and pleasure, can't they? The things we have created, the things we hold dear to. It might be political activism. Think of the climate we're in at the moment. There's a lack of accountability. There's a lack of confidence in our leaders, aren't there? There are questions flying around. And perhaps if political activism is one of those boundary markers in our life that we hold to, we want to have well-informed, well-thought-out views. We want to stand for integrity and justice because these things really matter and they're worth fighting for. They become boundary markers, not only to measure ourselves, but to hold others accountable as well. And we're prepared to stand for them. And so if people in authority have broken rules or act as if they're not accountable, then they must be removed. They've broken the boundaries. It might be a deep concern for the environment, which means decisions about where and how we travel what we eat, what we buy, where the products come from, become markers of our priorities and values as well. It's seen in the workplace. In your workplaces, there are different cultures, aren't there? And, and that's been one of the struggles during the pandemic is to work out, well, what does it mean to have a culture, a team approach, now that we're all spread out and working virtually? But cultures around achievement and success, how you do your work, when you do it, how hard you work, it's the sort of things that are chatted about over coffee or lunch break or after work. It's seen in our home lives. What are the things you aspire to? What are the, the boundaries and the markers you're working towards in home life? How do you like to spend your leisure time, the people that you want to be around as well? And when you look at popular culture, especially when you look at it in terms of music and sport, however that's played out, the boundaries are defined by what we wear, what we listen to, the places we hang out, the rituals that we go through before going on a night out or before watching a sports match. You've got these markers all over the place, boundaries 
that we hold on to. Church is not immune from it either. We all have a way of doing things, a way of doing things around here that just becomes normal and accepted. And some of it's rightly informed by the Bible, some of it isn't, and some of it is unhelpful and is a barrier to others uh, approaching God. I can remember sitting in one church meeting where uh, it wasn't at this church, but um, it was a church meeting where uh, one of the main issues talked about was the color of the new carpets and the style of new chairs, which took a long time to sort out. And uh, chairs are important. We want people to be comfortable. But it did seem a bit odd in the priorities that we also faced in other things. But interestingly, if you start looking at your own life, and your priorities, your boundaries, your markers, you see they can also become markers for personal performance. How well are you doing? How well are you measured by your boundaries? Have you met your standards? Are you perhaps a person who's in the in crowd or do you want to be on the periphery? Those boundaries and patterns become our security. And what happens when someone comes from outside and asks why? Why do you do that? Why do you hold those boundaries, those markers? Maybe they point out that they're broken, they need changing. And then at that point, maybe we have a tendency to be a bit defensive, to hold on to them even more tightly. You see, as we go to scripture, we see Jesus Christ is the disruptor. He comes in to clear away the performance markers we've established. And chapter 7 is sort of working like that. It's helping get a new perspective on approaching God. And for the Jewish Christians living in Rome that the pastor of this letter is writing to, their old boundary markers of religion and worship were looking more attractive, especially as their faith in Jesus Christ meant they were facing danger and persecution. You see, the organized, elaborate, awe-inspiring big festivals, the priest-led temple worship in Jerusalem, and at that time it was government protected as well, seemed a better option. The right system, the right people, the right festivals, the right heritage, the right services. Their magnetic lures back to a way of religion that looks attractive, especially when you don't have those things. We have a resurrected king who's out of sight, leaves us baptism and a, a meal with bread and wine. Really? Look what they've got. And in these opening chapters, as we saw last week, there's a real danger here of these Christians turning away from Jesus, turning their hearts and backs on him. And in chapter 7, the pastor is showing them that Jesus really is the best. He is supreme. It's not worth going backwards to the old ways compared to what we have in Jesus Christ. He is the better priest, the sympathetic priest, and as we see here in chapter 7, the eternal priest. Because he secures the very thing that all human priests were working towards in the tabernacle, in the temple, but could not guarantee. Is that to be forgiven of our sin? To be saved from God's judgment? Saved for life with God? And the essential message the writer is making here is very simple. It's right there in verses 25 and 26. Have a look at that. Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him, 
because he's always he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy and blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He sacrificed for their, that's the people's, sins once for all when he offered himself. You see, Jesus is the boundary maker. He is the one who has achieved the perfect performance. And we enter his kingdom because of what he has done, his work. And this means, quite simply, we have, verse 19, a better hope which we draw near to God with. And if you keep this as your north star, as your anchor point, as we explore this passage on how Jesus is our eternal priest, it will make sense of life here and now. Keep that anchor point. You won't get lost as we look at chapter 7. So let's see, who is this mysterious Mel? Not Mel Gibson, not any of the Spice Girls, Mel B or Mel C. We've got Mel D. He's a king. It's there quite clearly. He's been mentioned before. He gets these little cameo appearances in the letter. Chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 10, his name's name dropped there. Chapter 6, verse 20. And this guy, Melchizedek, appears for three verses in Genesis chapter 14. <laughs> Talk about a slight entry, you know, in and out, you're off. And yet, how central is he? What we're told in Genesis um, chapter 14, is Abraham is coming back from a battle where he's fought four kings in the surrounding area near Canaan. And he's fought them because they carried off Lot and his family, his nephew Lot, and Abraham and his men go on a rescue mission. And they win. And what happens is King Melchizedek brings out bread and wine to Abraham. He just comes out of his city, Salem, Jerusalem, he brings this bread and wine to Abraham, and then Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of the treasure that's been taken in the battle. Uh, Abraham actually doesn't take any of the treasure himself. He's using it to pay the guys who came on the rescue mission, and he gives a tenth of it to Melchizedek. And then that's it. Mel then blesses Abraham. He says a prayer of blessing over him, and he's gone. He then pops up again in Psalm 110, which is a song that King David wrote inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we'll look at that a little bit later. But he's a mystery man. The Bible doesn't record who his father or mother is. The, the writer here puts that in verse 3, um, which is really unusual given how central genealogies and family trees were, particularly in Genesis. Everyone's tracing everything to see where they're coming from. And here comes this king in and out, whoo, gone. He seems untraceable. But there's some essential information about him that highlights why his priesthood is so unique, totally unique, totally different from the Levites. First, we're told he's a priest and a king. He's the king of Salem, that is Jerusalem. He's the priest of God Most High. Later in the Old Testament, priests were forbidden to function as kings. And kings were not allowed to act as priests. They were two separate offices. And Saul took it upon himself at one point to sacrifice before they were going to go into battle because uh, Samuel wasn't there, who was going to do the evening sacrifice. And Saul went, oh man, he's late, let's just get on with it, I'll do it. And actually, that that action, that defiance, meant he lost his kingdom. It was that serious that the Lord said, so you, you don't take it upon yourself. 
obey. The offerings are given by the priest, and at that time that was Samuel's work. But there's no other figure in the Bible who ever held both roles until Jesus. Can you see there's something unique and special here? Then we're told his name. He's got a unique name with a unique job. He's the bringer of righteousness. Is what his name means, the way to be right with God. And he is the king of peace. That's the blessing of life with God. You see, this peace with God cannot be had without righteousness. And Jesus, in the fullest sense, is the righteousness of God and the bringer of peace, who gives that to all who follow him. And then we're told that the Bible presents Mel as this eternal priest. This, the, the fact there's no detail around the family trees, this, this is not an inherited tribe role as, as it was for the Levites. For Melchizedek, we, there's no mention of his mum and dad. He was born, obviously he was born. He's a human. We're told that he resembles Jesus. So the writer isn't saying that he's divine in some way. But that the, these lack of details give us a mystery. They're pointing forward to something that will be fulfilled later. It makes him sound as if he's always been there. And verse 3 finishes, he remains a priest forever. Now, what's interesting here, the, the writer is using the Old Testament scriptures and particularly what they omit, what they don't say about his parents and that silence as actually pointing forward and forming the basis of a type of Christ, a type of king who is going to come, who will be eternal. But then, fascinatingly, we're also told that Melchizedek is greater than any of the other priests because he, became, he came before them, even greater than Abraham, the father of the nation of God's people, honored and looked up to Melchizedek. Later on in Israel's history, the people would give their tithes, 10% of their earnings, to the priests. It was a way of enabling the Levite priests to work in the tabernacle and then in the temple without having to look after their own land and, and run their own businesses and earn money. But what we're told here in verse 4 is just think how great Melchizedek was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Can you see what's going on? The honor, the tribute, the payment is given by the lesser person to the greater. In fact, he goes on to say that given Levi was a descendant of Abraham, verse 9, one might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, from the people that is, when they were around, paid the tenth to Melchizedek through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. That's an interesting Hebrew thought there, that Levi was a twinkle in Abraham's eye as his great-great-grandfather. And somehow, because of being in Abraham, Levi himself is caught up in that act of giving the gift to Melchizedek, giving the honor, recognizing he is greater. And all of this establishes the fact that Melchizedek was superior. He's the greater Old Testament hero here. Greater even than Abraham. That's something, isn't it? A prototype for a different type of priest. 
We could say he's the Champions League that only had one other king priest who was the real deal. Read, have a look with me at verses 14 to 17 there. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, for it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, the pastor's already quoted from Psalm 110, that quote there. It's come up a few times earlier in the letter. And what he's saying quite clearly is this refers to Jesus. Interestingly, Jesus himself used this psalm, Psalm 110, when he's debating with the religious leaders in Jerusalem in Matthew 22. He uses this to get them to think more deeply about who David is talking about here, because David calls him his Lord. And he is greater than David. Jesus is in that conversation, pointing the religious leaders to think more deeply about who he is. It's a claim of his divine priesthood. Now, the writer here realizes that the Levitical priesthood, which was always provisional, was imperfect. It's flawed. It's got issues. Look at verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the priesthood by the Levites, then why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. So then he moves on to show us how the Levitical priesthood was flawed. Why perfection can be achieved by it, by contrasting it with Jesus and what he's achieved. Now, I came across this story of a guy called Steve Petrick. Um, I think Frank, if you can flick, I don't know how clear that is, but you'll see him looking a bit like Harry Potter, surrounded by a lot of Harry Potter clutter. Um, he was, at one, one point in time, crowned the world's biggest Harry Potter fan on an online poll. He's now 33 years old, and most of his Harry Potter memorabilia, over, uh, over 3,000 different items, is boxed away. But he's still got his six Harry Potter tattoos, and uh, which he's very proud about, and also one that's uh, a signed uh, J.K. Rowling signature on his arm. Apparently, his most prized possession is a letter from the author, uh, which she sent him, which includes half uh, a page of a personalized message which she's handwritten. And apparently, uh, literary collector experts have valued this at around $50,000. Anyway... Steve has sort of moved on from his Harry Potter days, but it's still very close to his heart. He dresses up as a wizard for Christmas. But he is a bit of a benchmark, isn't he? Arguably. If you want to look at Harry Potter fans, then you're going to have to look at Steve's standard. He far outshines in this record. And what we're going to do now, again, and you'll see this repeated as we've been going through Hebrews, we're going to look at how more Jesus has done. We're going to look at the standard he sets and that what he does is perfect rather than provisional. And his work is 100% effective. 
And we're given a few reasons in this passage why. One of the biggest is the fact that we're told Aaron's priests were weak and useless. It's quite a hard thing to hear, isn't it? If you're Aaron, oh great. But it's true. Verses 26 to 27 make it clear that those priests needed to offer sacrifices for their own sins. They were just as fallen and broken as the people they were ministering to, representing before God. Verse 28 tops this off by stating the high priests were weak. And it's important to get clear that that doesn't mean that the Old Testament was a massive experiment of trial and error. God wasn't playing around with a few systems to see what would work best. The Old Testament worship system prepared people for the sun's coming. When it was done with faith, people were truly forgiven, but it was always provisional. It was weak because it could never be perfect. It couldn't provide what only God could do. And just think of someone someone who, who suffers with type 1 diabetes, where they need to inject themselves with insulin to keep those glucose levels normal. And those daily injections, they certainly help, they're certainly effective, but it isn't a cure. It's a temporary solution. It sustains you, but you'd long for a true cure, a day when those injections don't need to happen. The Old Testament law, the sacrifices, the the Levite order of priests were temporary covered. They were signposts pointing forward to a greater reality fulfilled by Jesus. The perfect cure came with him. And why is it 100% effective? Because, verse 26, he is without sin. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because he is sinless, yet he experienced all the trials and sufferings of life, but he didn't compromise. He does what no other human priest would dare be able to do. He offers himself as the sacrifice. He does what no other priest could or would dare to do. And that is the foundation of Jesus' saving work. But the pastor doesn't stop there. He keeps going. And this is going back to chapter 6. You know, last week we were looking at mature teaching. How do you mature yourself? You go deeper into the gospel. Don't just settle for skimming, for the, the milk. You need food. And so he's here he is giving this mature food, going, let's look deeper. Let's keep pushing. It's not enough just to stay there. Let's carry on looking at the differences. And the second aspect is that the Levitical priests and the high priests say face the same thing. Really obvious point, they died. There was replacement against the permanent. I remember uh, visiting Manchester Grammar School to do an assembly and noticing as you come in, I think it's probably still there, but there's these huge wooden boards mounted on the wall of the entrance hall and the boards listed the names and dates of all the high masters of the school. And the list goes back over the centuries. And whilst it's a great way to remember the legacy of previous teachers, it's also a way of remembering and being reminded of the inevitable end of their work and life. Isn't it? One after another, after another, after another. Much like the priests of the Old Testament. Verse 23. 
Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives on forever, he is a permanent priesthood. The Levitical system was flawed because priests die. The curse that God in Genesis 3 put on humanity as a result of our own sin is evident. It's seen in all the priests. They didn't have the power to overcome that enemy, death. And yet Jesus died and lives on. He's different to them. His authority as a priest rests on the basis of his power, the indestructible life, verse 16. The next aspect that we're shown is repetition against one time. Repeated actions or one for all. You see, in the sacrifices, as you read through it in the Old Testament, you see there's, it's constant, a constant need to carry out these sacrifices, daily prayers, annual sacrifices, annual festivals. It had no end in sight, and yet Jesus' sacrifice engulfed that need. His death exhausted the monotony of continually making sacrifices each day, each year. And he sacrificed for their sins, verse 27, we're told, once for all, when he offered himself. Repetition, one time. And then the fourth aspect there that the writer takes us into is his work is sufficient. Verse 25, he is able to save completely. Did that hit you as it was read? Save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Yes, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was completed. Sins were forgiven. Our punishment was taken by him. For those who come to him, they're decisively forgiven. All the sin is wiped away. And Jesus' work continues now. He's applying the reality of his death and resurrection to us every day. Even at this very moment... In the throne room, by representing us, interceding, praying for us before God the Father. Right now, he's at work. Now, don't think that Jesus is trying to persuade God the Father to save us as if he's, he's pleading with him. Oh, Father, don't punish them, don't, you know, and there's this sort of standoff going on. Don't think that. No, not at all. Never think for a moment that God the Son, Jesus Christ, is, is for you and God the Father is against you. No, it's not that picture at all. When you think of Jesus interceding for us, picture the throne room of God, the control center of the universe, with Jesus who loves to say, Father, I died for them, for Grace Church meeting in Manchester, for all those who profess my name in the UK, for those in the Ukraine at the moment, in Russia as well, and in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and all over the place. And Father, I know their names. I've taken their punishment for their sin. My righteousness is theirs. Supply them with all their needs that they might keep serving us. And the father rejoices. Replying, I know, we've done it. It's completed. Son, your work is perfect. I love you. And the trinity of love with the spirit applying that work. It's one of glory and joy. And it's permanent. It's unshakable. (sighs) 
better than a lawyer in a courtroom on your behalf before a judge. Jesus is the complete testimony, the complete witness in the throne room of glory for you, for us. He's an ever-present and ready help, a supply to us when we're in need. Facing temptation, facing discouragement, facing tiredness, facing doubts and uncertainty, facing loneliness, facing hopelessness. He is enough. But so what? How does that change your lives? How should this terrific reality shape our attitudes and behavior? And again, the application comes back to verses 18 and 19 and verse 25. Verses 18 to 19, the former regulation, that Old Testament sacrificial worship system, the priesthood, that is now set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Just think about how people today would answer that question. If they assume God exists, how do you draw near to God then? Thanks, Frank. How do you get close to God? Do religion, perform certain rituals, have a priest who prays for you, forgives you, go on pilgrimage? Or is it have an experience, seek a different way to connect with God, whether that's through music or nature or spiritual supernatural feelings or all of that stuff, or just find your way to do it? Or it's the moralistic path, the be nicer, the moral improvement, obey, be decent, be generous, serve. How do you draw close? If you ever hope to draw near to God, it can only be through him, through Jesus, and what he has done in his life, death, and resurrection for lost and hell-deserving sinners like me and you. Not through saints in a church, not through his mother Mary, not through religious leaders, Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, or countless deities depicted in the statues, not through world philosophers. We draw near to God through Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. Remember the boundary markers that we have in life. Those things you intuitively, those things you deliberately turn to to help us find identity, purpose, and pleasure. Your career achievements, having the fit and healthy body, uh, having your own home in a desirable neighborhood, graduating with a first, making a bigger bonus each year, having a fulfilled and uncomplicated love life. Now, those are good gifts from God. But all too often, we make them our default priests. We think they will mediate peace and life, that, that in all, they'll give us all the fullness we're after. But actually, they're dragging us further away from the gift giver. That's why we need the indestructible one from the outside, the king of righteousness and peace, who truly meets our needs. We need him to break into our small worlds, to challenge the boundaries, to smash them, those performance markers we've put up, to replace them with his beauty, with his majesty, with his love. And that affects everything. If we're prepared to say, Jesus, go there, affect it all. Take the boundaries, smash them up. I want to draw near to you and only you through you. Draw near to him today. I'll finish with this invitation, which was uh, originally written by a pastor, um, the Reverend Dr. Sam Storms. To the weary and worn out, draw near to God through Jesus Christ that you may find strength to endure. 
to the shame-filled and downtrodden, draw near to God through Jesus Christ, he will cleanse you of all guilt and take your shame and clothe you in joy. To those who have lost hope, draw near to God through Jesus because he will restore hope in his promises and his purposes for your life. To those who are broken and weak, physically, mentally, emotionally, draw near to God through Jesus that he may bring his healing power to you. To those who have been deeply wounded or abused, whether by a relative, someone in a position of authority, or someone you thought was a friend, draw near to God through Jesus Christ to find a friend who can be trusted. In his power, he is gentle. He is humble. He is life-giving. He was wounded so that your wounds would be healed by his love. You do not need to wound yourself. So anyone, young or old, who is fed up, who has believed the lie that nothing will ever change, that life simply isn't worth living, draw near to God through Jesus Christ, who makes all things new. Lord Jesus, we come to you today. We thank you that you save us completely. We thank you that you are always at work, even now, for the good of your people. Change our lives, great high priest, eternal priest, through your powerful truth. Sink it deep into our hearts and minds for your glory. Amen.